you realize, God, I better do something important with my life if all of these ancestors and all these plants and animals are all giving their lives so that I can just be here for another day. I better do something, like, do the thing I said I was going to do in this lifetime. Oh, hey, Medicine Stories. Me, Amber. Glad to have you back. Glad to be here. It is fun putting out a podcast only a week after the last one. This is the production schedule I would really like to be on all the time. It's just not not always possible at this deeply, intensively mothering phase of my life. But thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And today I'm talking to... Yaya Aaron Rivera Merriman, who I first met on Instagram, like so many of the podcast guests, and uh, we first met in person, I guess, in 2014. Yep, at the Spirit Weavers Gathering. It was in Joshua Tree that year. Um, Aaron is Active Culture Family online on Instagram, her website. I'm thinking a lot of you know who she is, and for those of you who don't, I'm thinking you're going to be pretty stoked to be introduced to her today. Um, man, we talk about so much. We talk about loving the sound of the thing that you are called by and choosing a name with multi-layered meaning, going from being an outcast to being a leader what being the daughter of an immigrant taught Yaya about communication and self-expression, that moment when you realize your magic, making the radical choice to express the way you really feel. That way, if people hate you, at least they hate the real you and not a false impression of who they think you are. Also that way, you attract the exact right people into your life. Why dreams are real. Our favorite dream teacher, writer, and how to work with your dreams and nightmares. Fear is never the truth. Magic, nature, and layers and layers of ancestral depth. Yaya says, I feel like I have an intact ancestral identity in a way I didn't even three years ago. Healing chronic pain, sensory overload, and how, quote, there's a lot of undeniably magical things happening all the time, but life is loud. Navigating the world as an empath and or highly sensitive person. Um, How a lot of chronic conditions are due to long-term nervous system overwhelm. Herbal body oiling. How a radical dietary change healed Yaya's endocrine and nervous systems. How it's a good thing to do things that our ancestors would recognize from their time on earth. To engage in activities that are familiar to them. You know, not just staring at our phones and being on our computers and watching TV and driving in cars and eating processed food all day. Um, Shape-shifting mythical archetypes and fields of consciousness. And discovering your own relationship with the plant realm. Um, So I'm not going to talk too much during this intro because it's a pretty long and (laughs) uh, just like very deep but multi-faceted like it goes this conversation goes both deep and wide and I'm thinking a lot of you are gonna have to listen to it in chunks and 
um, that this will be one that a lot of people listen to more than once, which is something I hear from so many listeners. And um, I do that too. I listen to each episode at least two times while I'm preparing to get it out into the world. And then I used to always listen to them in the app, like driving in my car after it came out so I could like have the experience that other people have of listening to it. But I just don't have time for that anymore. Um, especially again, trying to get the episodes out more often. Uh, but what I do want to talk about is what I have on Patreon to go along with this episode. Cause I think it's pretty cool and I'm excited about it. So you, you might already know that I'm a big bibliophile, a book lover. Um, I always have been, I have these memories of <laughs> in childhood at family gatherings, my aunt who's, um, an Italian woman from Boston always being like, Amba always has a book. Why you always got a book, Amba? She's always reading. Why are you always reading a book, Amba? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting how some people seem to feel offended or like threatened by people who read a lot. Um, and I, you know, not everyone is, uh, I don't know, it's just like prone to sitting still and taking information all the time. So I really don't judge people who don't read a lot of books. But man, I very strongly believe that everyone should read at least some books at least some of the time. I, I, I just, you just miss out on so much human knowledge, human thought, human connection by only getting content through the internet, through video, through audio. Um, you know, there's something that really happens in like deeper layers of the brain through reading. And that's science. I've read about it. <laughs> I can't think about it. Any of the books I've read or, or articles I've read or heard podcasts about this subject. But, um, you know, something that comes to mind is like studying uh, college students and other students and just knowing that we really can take in information, maybe in a more long-term basis when it's read. And I like to go in all directions when I'm trying to learn a subject. I like to mostly read about it, but also if I can watch videos online, listen to podcasts or other audio content, that really helps me. And, but you know, so, so many books have not been translated into audio or video. So anyway... I love books. I might even have a bit of a weird like addiction to acquiring and consuming new books and um, you know, information overload is a real thing, like we talked about in episode twenty with Cammie McBride. But it's just how I'm wired and I love it and it's absolutely made me who I am today. Each each book I've read has changed me and changed my life in some way, and some in really profound ways and so that is what this Patreon um, offering is about today. So years ago, Yaya interviewed me for her website. And one of the questions she asked um, was for me to name my top three books. And I did that and I wrote long paragraphs about each book and why I was choosing them. So I thought for this Patreon that she could do the same for us. She could give us three books, her top three books. And so she did. And so this offering there is her top three life-changing books and followed by my three that I gave her years ago because that interview is not available on her website anymore. Um, her book, she just gave me the book title. She didn't write something out for them like I did. So she's just got her three books there and then I've got my three plus again those long paragraphs about 
why I love them so much. Um, so that's there at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Check it out. And, you know, I recently uh, heard Dr. Mercola when he interviewed Dr. Lee No on his podcast. So I was getting really interested in mitochondrial function and how the mitochondria work in the body and every cell of the body and how our health and our long-term health and aging and chronic disease and everything is so has everything to do with how well our mitochondria is functioning and I first was interested in that because of the um, DNA inheritance that we get from our mothers through mitochondria and you know first became aware of it in 2011 when I did um, a genographic project ancestry test to find out where my mitochondrial line comes from, where my mother's 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 going back about 2000 years or my ancient grandmother um, and her line evolved. And so the results from that were haplogroup V, which were Northern, Northern European peoples at that time. But I recently reread the results and they've really updated them since I first got them way back then. And, um, you know, it's just as sort of a tangent here, really interesting to, to see and to remember that we all come from Africa. We all come from Africa. And then mo when the first two lines split out of Africa, they stayed in that area or in what we Eurocentrically call the Middle East or the Near East, or some of them went into Asia and then down into Australia and, you know, just reading these, this long, like deep history look at the um, migration patterns that my ancestors took was such a reminder that like for any of us with ancestry other than African, and we don't, um, you know, self-identify as African, it was just such a good reminder that that's where we all come from. And for me, having like quote, 100% European ancestry, when I do autosomal DNA tests, which are a little different, those, those are the ones that give you like the percentage breakdown, 100% um, European. But, but actually, you know, I'm looking at deep time, I'm not and no one is. And it was just a really, really sweet reminder that we are all so much more than we look to be on the surface. And that the longer history of our lineages is so much vaster and wider than we tend to think of them when we say, oh, I'm, I've got Dutch and French and Scottish and Manx in my ancestry. Um, that those are the main lines that I've been able to follow through doing recent genealogy. And uh, Manx is the Isle of Man. So what was I, what was I saying, you guys? <laughs> How did I get off on that? Um, I don't remember right now, but I think that it's time for us to listen to this interview now with, with Yaya. So let me give you her bio real quick. Um, Yaya Aaron Rivera Merriman is a plant spirit medicine practitioner, rebirth doula, goddess scholar, mother and artist, best known as the director of Active Culture Family. Erin walks a path of community stewardship and service to Gaia through her roles as lead facilitator of the Medicine Mandala Green Magic Apprenticeship Program and as priestess of Bridge Temple, a remote off-grid mystery school, healing sanctuary, culture farm, 
and Library of Earth Magic located on sacred land in the Cleveland National Forest of San Diego, California. And like my last guest, Erin has a awesome podcast of her own that I'm thinking listeners of this show will dig. Um, it's called the Starseed Survival Podcast. And I was interviewed on it about a year ago or something. So we mentioned that interview a few times during this episode. And I remembered what I was going to talk about. So the reason I was listening to that Dr. Mercola podcast with Lee No was because it was about mitochondria. And I had just gotten Lee's book to learn more about it. Again, I got interested in it because we inherit our mitochondria only from our mothers. Not our dads don't come to us at all. Um, actually when the sperm and egg meet, <laughs> the egg like violently rejects the few mitochondria that helped, uh, fuel the sperms swim to the egg to make sure that none of the father's mitochondria gets through. So it's a really interesting, purely maternal inheritance. But then when you start looking at all the functions of mitochondria, it's so fascinating. Anyway, in the intro to that interview, Dr. Mercola just said something, that perfectly summed up how I feel about books, which is that like books are such a worthwhile um, money. They're so worth the money you put into them and they're so worth the time you put into them because here is just this object that you can hold in your hand that in terms of nonfiction and maybe fiction too, but in terms of nonfiction represents years of work and probably research on the part of another human being that would it would take you j just as many years to get all that information in by doing internet searches or other ways of gathering your information but here's this book you spent freaking fifteen dollars maybe on it and you hold it in your hand and you turn the pages and you can intake all this information that another human has gathered and um, processed and made sense of for you so read books, y'all. Read books. Read your children books. Um, and check out uh, patreon.com slash medicine stories for three of my top books. I don't know if they're the very top because it's been a few years since then and I'm constantly, constantly reading. I usually have like, I don't know, somewhere between six and ten nonfiction books going at a time and I just dip in and out depending on what is capturing my interest in that moment it's like very mood-based thing and I don't always finish all the books but I usually take in enough of them to understand what's happening um what the author's getting at and I love having them in my library to refer to later because I do that all the time like kind of lose interest in something for a few years and then all of a sudden it gets reawoken and I'm so glad I have those books on my shelf to pull off and get back into um one more thing before we go if you haven't yet, check out my very fun quiz, uh, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's really a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are super in-depth. It took me a whole summer to write out the various results because I really wanted what I really wanted. I will tell you the secret truth about this quiz. Um, I wanted the title to be super catchy and almost kind of ridiculous like I think it is um, I wanted the quiz to be like I said really lighthearted, playful and fun to keep people going and then I wanted to just kind of like snatch people and bring them in and drop them deep into plant medicine wisdom with the results and um, it's worked thousands and thousands of people have taken it I've gotten such good feedback it's really fun 
And so if you haven't taken it yet and you would like to, you can just head to my website, uh, mythicmedicine.love, and it's there embedded on the front page. And there's also a uh, like bar across the top that you can click on to take it. And so that that should be fun and meaningful for you. And okay, let's now, I always say I'm going to do short intros and I never do. Um, but you know what? I really appreciate, I've gotten feedback from so, so many people saying that you love the intro and thank you. That feels really good for me because I've listened to so many podcasts where the intro just feels like this droning on of nothingness. Um, and I really didn't want to do that for this show, but what I've realized, I think at least, is that in that case, it was all men and it all just felt like a bunch of mansplaining and I just was really always hard to take in. So maybe some of you hate my intros, but most of you seem to really appreciate them. And I'm very grateful and I'm so grateful for every single one of you. My gosh, the feedback I've been getting lately on the show is so phenomenal and it, it just fills me up, it fills me up in ways I can't even articulate. So thank you so, so, so much for being here. And yeah, now let's listen to this interview with Yaya Aaron Rivera Merriman. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast. Hi, Amber. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I just called you Aaron, but I know that you are going through a, a shift with your name, and I really loved what you um what you wrote about this when we were preparing for the interview, you said, after a lifetime of questioning my right to customize my name, I'm finally feeling like it's my life and I have the right to love the sound of the thing I'm called by. Yeah. You know, it's just that simple. I think it's a lot more complicated for a lot of people. And I love and I totally resonate with what you wrote. And um, I just I'd like to hear more about that and the name that you are now using. Yes, I, I think that part of the reason it took me a really long time um, to make a decision is just because I do honor like the choice and the process that my parents went through in arriving at naming me Erin, and I believe in the power of, of that as well, um, that it is our parents do have a role in determining certain factors of our experience. And I, and I did want to honor that and, and live that and understand what it meant to be Aaron. Um, and I guess the dialogue in my mind was always like, should I change my name? Um, and then I just realized that it was the wrong question for me that um, what I um, this journey that I have embarked on with um, adjusting my name is just that I'm not not Aaron. I'm just more than that. Um, so um, I think I probably will legally change it to just include Yaya. So I feel like my name is Yaya Aaron Rivera Merriman. And so if people want to call me either one, it's totally fine because I am all of those things. Uh, 
So it just feels like acknowledging an expansion that has occurred in my identity and my sense of self to include my mother and my uh, lineage. So the name Yaya was something that my mom was called when she was little. Her name is Migdalia and Migdaya, Yaya. Uh, so what some of the kids that couldn't pronounce uh, her name meant. And uh, it's taken me a long time to realize what the mother-daughter relationship for me is, which is just that we are exactly the same energy flowed through a different set of life circumstances. So um, if I had experienced the uh, abuse, the, the level of abuse that she did, then I would probably have similar strategies that she does, even the strategies that like deeply uh, challenge me to interact with, to just really see like, that is what my archetypal configuration would do or would be like you know, um, without all of the, um, the upgrades that my mother and my grandmother like sacrificed for. Um, so I, it's an embracing of that, of, of my mother and, and, you know, all her, her strengths and all her challenges. And then, um, it's actually, uh, tying a word, for creator, but their, their sense of what creator is is really different than ours. So, um, yeah, that's that's actually the shortest version of it, even though it wasn't a short <laughs> answer. I, I think when you interviewed me on your podcast, I remember we had a, a conversation about both feeling like, like coming to that realization that like, I am my mom on a really deep, bigger lifetimes archetypal cycle that it's hard to you know beyond that like kind of standard you turned into your mother yeah. thing um just <laughs> how yeah I don't know I think you articulate it better than I do but it's interesting to hear that that name is your mother's name mm -hmm. and I, I like having that story now <laughs> now I understand now I look at you and I'm like oh it's yeah yeah I get it <laughs> there's actually another element that's been really fun which is um in our apprenticeship we have a, a volunteer in the community whose daughter comes who's five who um, has always felt very entitled to change her her name in the moment and so one day she's kiki and one day she's rosy and then she does this with other people too she'll be like purple carrot purple <laughs> carrot and you realize like, oh she's talking to me and then the next day it's like cosmic carrot um <laughs> and so we're kind of taking a page out of Kiki slash Rosie's book and just like seeing what that empowerment and spontaneity does for us. So it's something that we do. We all do in the space is we all feel like we can let each other know whenever we want, like when there's like a new name that we want to try on and see how it feels to be called that. Uh, and so as we're walking around and, and I'm, I'm hearing that my chosen name in the space I'm, I'm hearing it everywhere and I'm noticing that people actually say, yeah, yeah, all the time. <laughs> like everybody says this all the time and they say it at the end of a conversation to indicate that both people feel that they're on the same page now. Mm -hmm. So it actually, in English, 
is the same as aho uh, in you know many native tongues and I just love that because it's not something I intended but it is absolutely like the essence of the matter to me is like I present sometimes in a kind of complex artistic way that makes it maybe hard for people to tell what I'm really about and what I'm really about is arriving at congruity, like believing that there's always congruity there to be arrived at. And sometimes it takes a lot of skill and a lot of effort. Um, but that moment of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're there that I live for that. Mm. So I like the way that names can reveal things to us continuously also. Wow. Um, I want to hear more about your childhood and your growing up because I know that you have always deeply felt um, like you didn't fit. And that's really always been your experience, just little bits and pieces I've gotten from you over the years. And, you know, really, when I think about other people's stories of feeling the same way, I, I actually feel like of all the people I know, yours is the deepest, like your sense <laughs> of being different and being from elsewhere or, you know, how I don't know how you how you put it, but um, and like clearly, though, you've arrived at a point and it's been a many, many years journey where you are fully embracing, fully taking people along with you on your trailblazing paths through this life and um I don't, it's hard to even articulate like what a radically creative person you are. So I, yeah, I just, I would like to hear. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we've had, you know, we've had a number of conversations over the phone, over Skype, in person. I was on your podcast. I've sat in your Kava temples that you facilitate twice. And I always find myself at a loss for words as to how to describe what you are channeling is really the only way that I can put it. And I don't use that word very often. Um, Okay, so I'm going to hand it over to you. What was the question again? Your childhood and your like, I mean, that's obviously a big question. Like, tell me everything about how you came to be how you are. But maybe we can kind of focus on this thing you mentioned to me about like teen bullying in high school and how that is really um, affecting inspires your current work in the world. Yeah. I think that most people that come to me for one-on-one work or, like, come to one of my classes and then, like, ever come back again, um, it is maybe because there are aspects of themselves that they have always hidden and that they maybe felt like they would always have to hide. And so there is a a curation that happens in terms of like who is attracted to what I talk about and what I do. And, um, so I have had, you know, many years opportunity to study the, um, the patterns of, um, gosh, say like, like patterns of personality, like types of personalities that come from certain kind exposure to certain kinds of um, abuses, basically. And so one of those patterns is like people who are attracted to things that seem mystical or other than um, standard culture, uh, who, who they're looking for um, 
I don't know that they know what they're looking for. They're just like, I like this. I like things that look like this. I like things that sound like this, that have a certain mystical quality. But I believe they're looking for the vocabulary, like a better vocabulary to describe their essence so that they can do a better job um, educating people in how to interact with them so that they can have a better experience in their interactions. So, you know, a, a simpler way to say that is people who feel very, very misunderstood and, um, you know, maybe go around from session work to session work to session work, because that's the only space where they can be seen is by someone who can see what they're not expressing. And, uh, so this, this being able to be validated in, um, in who you actually feel like you are is like a precursor to being figuring out how to express it in a way that actually like reads and communicates to other people. And I've just like got had to walk this path, like all of these tools and skills that I have to be able to like see what people are hiding, but maybe like dying inside for not being able to express or even like manifesting illness for not being able to express, validate that for them. Get, lend them my vocabulary for it and so often people will hear things like me say things that they're just like you know will cry and be like ah that's the word I've never known how to share this like this thing that's so important or real for me um and so I think part of that is that English wasn't my mother's first language uh, and so I um there's some really practical things in there um growing up being guided by someone, you know, who came to the United States when she was six, whose parents didn't really learn English and was thrown into Western schools and just classified as, um, stupid, um, and like remedial because there was no, like, you know, um, there was no program to help her, um, you know, and no one really looking to be like, Oh, you don't speak English actually. So she had to um, be very, very creative to survive um, basically on her own um, in a new culture at six years old. Um, and so I think that I was able to what I was able to get from my mom is to watch like her make very, very unusual choices um, and be like, like survive, really like like do the thing, make her way in the world, have jobs, make money, have friends that, you know, she could do things with. Um, but also watching, like, none of these people are actually seeing her, etc. cetera. Um, so there's a cultural element. And then there's, there's an element of the pattern where um, we don't necessarily know how different we are than other people. Like, I think, like, as mestizo in the United States or as psychic people in a culture that doesn't believe in magic. Like, cause we, if you're born a certain way, then you just think everyone is this way. So if you're born being able to pick up on other people's feelings, you're just like, wow, I, I would love to learn magic. I'm going to go to all these classes and learn magic. And what ends up happening in those classes is you realize that you have always been magic and you've always been using psychic gifts so you don't like get a new psychic gift you discover that some of your things about you that people think are weird or dysfunctional are actually like your gifts so um i just have had a very you know i'm 37 and i would say the first 
33 years, there's just like a lot of unconsciousness about like what the fuck was going on and like why people just didn't like me. You know, I just think people just don't like me. And, you know, elders would be like, no, they do. They do. And I'm like, no, you do not understand what happens when I try to like share my heart in friendships or with lovers. Um, Teachers like me in my classes. People like my writing and my artwork. But like when I really try to have intimacy in a relationship, like, it just like blows up in these like glorious dramatic ways that I have no idea like like wh- uh, what happened so I had to like just learn really really learn what was happening so just study like boundaries communication uh, all the relationship skills um, and you know along the way just kids are mean adults are mean you know um, I believe we are in a crisis of judgment addiction. I've said this like for a while now, like, I think it's like crisis level of judgment addiction as like judgment being our main tool to, um, protect our heart when there's a difference of opinion present that we don't understand. And that I have been on the receiving end of very, very intensive targeted judgment campaigns um for years of my young life and it sort of cycled back through adult life um waves of um that lesson so um ultimately i think it's just attempting to steer me into my medicine of like non-duality and like being able to hold a non-judgmental space that's conducive to exploration and adult learning. Um, and so I'm pretty like stoked about it, but, but it feels like I went straight into this like master's class as soon as I received my hormones and that I've been really in it for 17 years, uh, or more. Uh, yeah, actually, (laughs) think it's more like 23 years (laughs) uh so most of the other things that I do dream work and herbalism and plant medicine it's all with a focus on this like communication authentic expression um boundaries what all these different tools and realms have to say about like, how do we stay healthy in relationship to other people? I mean, how do we stay healthy in ourselves first, but then in relationship to other people (laughs) next. And so do you feel like you've shifted that? Are you experiencing that reception from other people in a different way since you've done all this work and realizations? Um, I think so. And the, a major factor for me was like, like if I would be interested in dating someone and that person was not interested in dating me, I mean, we've all been there. Um, I, I kind of got to a point with that where I was like, well, <laughs> here's the thing. I don't, I w- don't want to have any lingering feelings that like, what if I had been a little bit more like courageously authentic, if then like they would have seen me and they would have understood how awesome I was and they would have understood the invitation, like what a smoking hot invitation it was to relate with me. Um, so that's kind of the thing that ultimately pushed me to like, um, bring more and more of myself out of hiding and like, not just out of hiding, like in front of other people, but like, put it in the public sphere, like 
make the podcast say things in a different way, maybe on my website that was like less professional, but more closer to the essence of who I am, use my own language um, in situations where I maybe felt like a little bit of conflict, like, oh, I don't know, is that too much? Like, is that going to like scare people away? Just sort of erring on the side of like a radical choice to express the way I experience myself inside. And so I was like, this way, if anyone hates me, if anyone feels deeply triggered or uncomfortable with me, at least they're being triggered by like who I actually am and not their like worst fear fantasy projection of who I am. Uh, and that happened maybe like in the past like three years that I've been getting clearer and clearer on that. And at this point, it's not something that I like grapple with a lot I feel like I'm fully just comfortable and flowing my thing and trust more like that that also that way if people like hate it and think it's total bullshit then they know right away and I never even have to talk to them you know they like to take my card and they go on my website and they're like what is this crap and I never hear from them again so um I just maybe like moved the I decided to take up more space and move the boundary like out into like the web space and say like, all of this is me and whatever part of that you're not cool with, it's cool. You just stay over there. <laughs> so now like the people who come in really like truly seem to be like, this is, this is what I need. This is the medicine I need. I feel clear on that. I'm in, let's do this. And what a relief to get to only roll with those people. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I know what you're talking about in a way like over the last few years you know both you and I are um, active on Instagram and then started podcasts and it's like as my audience grows or as my work gets more out there um, I become a more polarizing person you know there are the people <laughs> who just like hate me and then there are the people who love me and I realize the same thing like just the more authentic I am the more I've got the people who are who are on the same wavelength or who can benefit from the things I'm talking about nearby and the people who can or don't want to or whatever leave the realm and that's that's perfect. So the more real I can be, the more I can jettison the baggage that I don't need. Yeah, I think it saves people from... I'm like, deeply immersed in the study of karma and like how karma works and why it exists. And... Um, I think that once you've done like a lot of quote unquote work on yourself, you just, you know who you are, you know what you stand for, you know your values. Um, sometimes uh, people who don't know who they are, they don't know who their values are, whatever, like they're not, they haven't got into that point in their journey yet, are like attracted to you as like a, a projector screen like as a place to project all their stuff to, so that they can work out their karmas too uh, and so they try it feels like trying to hook you into or enroll you in certain dramas um, so that they can have this experience they very much need to have in order to grow and learn and see themselves but it's it's like karmic and it works when you also are like, hey, I also see an opportunity here. And I think it's all unconscious, you know, like I also see an opportunity here to grow and learn and work on a certain aspect or maybe even that same aspect of myself. That's a relationship. But um, when you when you don't have the need 
to go into that karma or that drama with them, like that tends to be like a little messy because people are kind of like, validate me, see me, um, come into this argument with me or this space or this like, I, I'm having all this blame and I want you to like be there, like either receiving it or helping me unpack it or whatever. And, and, you know, sometimes it's just like, I'm sorry, like I already did that work, like with like six of my last relationships and I feel totally complete with that whole thing. I don't, um, I don't want to, and I'm under no obligation to, even though I have the medicine that you need, I'm under no obligation to give it to you for free in, in the guise of a friendship. Um, you know, if you'd like to do that work with me, you can book a session. Uh, and this kind of stuff, like among, I think people like our people were more or less the same age. So we're all kind of working out these dynamics as a community. Like, what is this attraction? Is it a friendship? Is it like your, your medicine, your opinion? Like what? Um, so yeah, that kind of comes down to like having an opinion that you can stand behind actually does mean that you've like arrived at a certain level of self-knowledge or self-mastery. And it, that constellates a whole uh, set of experiences. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I just gonna take it back a little bit. Um, because you mentioned the dream work and this is something that I'm so interested in your perspective on because it's a huge part of your life every day. You work with your dreams every day. You teach it. Um, I, I just, how, why? Why dreams? <laughs> and what is your practice? What do you teach? Mm. Wow. Thank you for asking. I just, I like all these subjects that they're a massive part of life, like dreams or menstruation or whatever, that it's like it's a huge part of life, but we don't really like talk about it very much. Yeah, or both of those things were like, <laughs> oh, shh, no one wants to hear about your dreams or your period. And you're like, oh, but it's a huge part of my life. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I grew up in a, a very like remote rural area. So there was 400 people in my school and it was the only public school for two towns combined. So there's 90 people in my graduating class. And um, like there's no grocery store in my town. Like, you know, it's like it's not a town. It's that this small. Is New York State? <laughs> um, it's in Connecticut. Okay. So similar to upstate New York mm -hmm. in vibe, if you're familiar. Um, and so I look back and I have like the deepest of gratitude for my, my parents' choice to um, immerse us in nature and have quiet and, you know, um, just honestly energetic protection of a forest surrounding and holding us. I feel it was invaluable, but as a teenager, oh my gosh, I hate it. I was like, this is the most boring place on the face of the planet. Like, why would you live here? Um, so I, I did a lot of things. Like, I, I think I even like getting into magic was born of just like tear my hair out boredom. Um, and feeling like I was having these like kind of massive feelings and thoughts and, 
creative urges and everything around me was sort of like it felt like the volume was turned down people would be like oh yeah you know the turnips are on sale shop right and like that was like all the conversations and so I always had this feeling of like what is going on and I think my dreams were like the one place that sort of like validated for me like yeah no there is way more going on and reading so between like reading a ton and then having like huge dream time experiences of flying and, and, you know, doing magic and traveling the world and whatever. Um, I just, of course was like, this is, this is the only area that this, this area makes a lot more sense to me than whatever anyone else is talking about. Um, but then also like a lot of people who I think get really into something, it's a matter of necessity that like I had a lot of nightmares, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was physically abused all growing up. I think the energies in the house, like the, the subconscious stuff was, there was a lot for a sensitive little kid and it was coming out in, you know, night terrors and nightmares and like really kind of violent bloody dreams. And so I just was fucking scared and I had to figure out what to do and people are kind of like, you know, dreams, it's not, it's not real, which, you know, they've gone on to learn, like, don't tell your kid that when they're telling you they had a nightmare, you're invalidating something that is real, very real to them. Um, but you know, at the time and still now, I'm just like, Oh, don't worry about it. It's not real. Don't be afraid. It's not real. It's just a dream. Um, and of course they have also gone on to study that your nervous system doesn't differentiate from experiences that you have in a dream and experiences you have in real life. So it's recorded as a trauma and affects the way that you greet reality to have violent or, you know, terrifying dreams. Um, so I just, I, I think whenever we need to do something, like if your mom and your kid has a fever and you live in the middle of nowhere and it's like spiking 106, you do weird shit to figure it out. You know, you're like, I rubbed carrots all over their face because that's what I had. And I don't know, it worked. Like, uh, I think that I just, it's sort of a theme these days, but like trauma or intensity, it is like, like a birthplace of a lot of creativity. And I, I learned how to lucid dream. The first lucid dreams that I remember having, I was probably 10. And so once I learned to, to stay conscious in the dream time, um, I started to figure out reliable tricks like, oh, my God, this monster is about to eat my face. I'm going to like hold my nose and act like I'm diving off a diving board backward and I'm, I'm going to wake up in another dream. And it would work like reliably. <laughs> um, so I had this ability to like change the dream or, um, you know, do any number of things, which I think. I mean, how, how useful is that if we believe that life is but a dream and this is just another dream state? How useful is that to, to be able to change the dream at will when we don't like it? <laughs> so you are able to consciously manipulate other dimensions from a really young age. <laughs> well, I love that, that, that uh, reflection reframe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yes. I mean, that kind of describes you to a T, so. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So were you just, I mean, I'm assuming that you were kind of figuring this all out on your own. Yeah. You didn't have, like, dream guidance out no, there. No, I mean, I didn't find books about dreaming. This is, you know, what I'm describing starting when I was 10, which 
I, I remember having some really deep dreams with like a camp counselor that I got like, you know, attached to like where I would like visit her at college and like, t- she would, you know, just we like how we would have these super deep conversations about like boundaries, you know, and I'm like in fourth grade. Uh, and, but the first time I found books about it and even had the idea, like I'm doing a thing, I'm doing this. I'm going to like try to study this more. I was in college um, and finding um, Stephen LeBarrage's book, Lucid Dreaming. I think I maybe found when I was like 26. Um, and that kind of was like, oh, this is a thing. It has a name. There's there's other characteristics of this state of consciousness that I could explore. Um, but probably I think I was like 23 when I found Robert Moss's work, and who I know you're familiar with, but is just an extremely prolific dream teacher from the fairy realm. Um, he had a childhood illness where he was in a coma as a child and, and I think for 11 days. And well, in that 11 ha- days... He had some crazy... Um, oh, gosh, what was it? Some, some sort of fever, like over and over and over and over again. So he was yeah. sick and in a fever state like constantly through his childhood. Yeah, and so when he was in this altered state of this fever, he would experience going home to this like realm at the center of the earth. He doesn't use the word fairy, but I, I do. Well, and he's Celtic um, in ancestry too. Yeah, and that in his that his lifetime when he would return there, he would like have whole lifetimes. Like he would get old and like and die, and when he would like die in that realm, he'd like wake up from his fever. And so he was trained in the other dimensions with these skills, and like you know sent back from the brink of death to um, share with us. And so when I first found his work, I was just, his vibe is kind of like Santa Claus. And I was just like too goth for that. So I was just like, no, I want this to be like mystical and edgy and weird. And like, you know, you're just too jolly for me. Um, (laughs) But I kept reading the books. And then over time, like I experienced the inner softening that enabled me to see like, he's fucking fierce. And the stuff he's doing and the the realms he's touching and interacting and bringing people to requires a great deal of vigor and ferocity. And the Santa Claus presentation is just like, um, it's a good compliment <laughs> to, um, in, you know, a person who's going to be inviting people to like face some aspects of themselves that maybe they haven't been ready to. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I read some of the books that, written by Carlos Castaneda's Witches, and, you know, there was sort of a time when I went through where I read maybe, like, 15 books that expanded my own, like, um, sense of what you can do and that, in that time, and not just studying my dreams or feeling empowered, um, but really, like, having agency in that space as well and having intentions about, like, what you would like to accomplish um, in your sleep. So I, a lot of my like, you know, spiritual practice or emotional like labor that I do in my life happens in that space. It's interesting too though, cause some people are just more, um, you know, predispositioned to having those kind of dreams. Like mm-hmm. I've had guests on the podcast where like, I dream about Walmart, you know, I, I dream <laughs> about being naked in math class and very rarely, and that's mostly my dreams too. Every now and then, maybe once a year, maybe once every couple of years, I'll have a 
big dream and it might just be an image. Um, mm-hmm. Very rarely is it a full, I've only actually had one like beginning to end whole dream that was like that whole dream was a story, a deep story for me. Um, so it's just interesting to me how people, you know, and then I dated a guy who every morning his dreams were insane, insane. Like I was like, I would kill for one of those dreams once <laughs> in my life. Um, well, the people though, I will say, cause you were sort of asking like, maybe you asked like, what is, what do you teach? Like, what is it that you do with that in that those mm-hmm. classes? And I found it doesn't really work as a short workshop. It really works as like, you know, even four weeks was too short. It really works as like, we're going to get together every, every week for six weeks, the same people. We're going to stage out the skills. We're going to start with dream recall. There's a lot of things you can do, practical things you can do to be able to remember more of your dreams because you are having more dreams than you remember. So people that say you don't dream, it's like, no, you do, uh, but you're not remembering them. Um, And so dream recall like is something everybody can engage in um and even the most simplest of tool of like if you would really need to have a good dream a clarifying dream some insight things like drinking a bunch of water before you go to sleep so that you wake up more in the night so that you have more opportunities to be in like semi-conscious states um really practical stuff and then we go from there into um lucid dreaming because the idea is kind of like once you're recalling more material chances are you're recalling more um processing of uncomfortable material um and then people like if you have a scary dream it's inhibiting you're like all right i don't want to do this i'm out i don't want to remember and so it's like no we have to give you tools to keep going in that state and the lucid dreaming really um it's the answer to anyone having nightmares or like night terrors like you need to if you're having nightmares and you would like to not be you need to learn to um face face your fears basically like um to stay present to not run away like people who have chasing dreams it's usually like oh you need to you need to learn lucid dreaming so you can make a conscious choice to not run away and and turn and face these things that are chasing you and say like what is it that you'd like to tell me? What's up? What what information are you attempting? And like to actually have that experience of feeling like I'm about to be annihilated and I'm going to turn and face this this energy and own the, uh, my belief that fear is never the truth and um, just be curious and ask questions. Once you do that a few times, you're like rewiring your nervous system to become basically become a completely different kind of animal. Uh, And then there are endless amounts of so now you're remembering the material you've committed to recording what you remember because there's a certain degree of like laziness when we're first waking up. That's like, ah, fuck, I don't want to like get the pen and write the thing down. I just want to go back to sleep. So you have to actually be like, no, no, it's now or never record the material. That's all not the practice. Still the practice is the part where you actually commit to spending a minimum of 15 minutes a day, putting the material through these translation lenses. So the lenses is like what I actually teach is like, here is a handful of lenses that you are going to make a commitment to say every day, I'm going to write it down, whatever I remember. And I'm going to take out all seven of these lenses and I'm going to take the time to put, 
to look through each lens and maybe the first one, oh, nothing, you know, and the second one, oh, nothing. And then the third one, oh, oh, I get it. So I do at that stage bring in other people's work and, you know, have people read some like like one of Robert Moss's books in particular. And he has a practice called the Lightning Dream Work. So uh, which is on his website. It's for free. Anybody can go and find it and do it. But um, the the collected lenses some of them are my own and some of them are practices from other dream teachers that have been especially useful and fruitful for me. um, I I love what you said. Um, Fear, what'd you say? Fear is never the truth. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's just, that's so good. It's, I, um, it reminds me of, Something that when Lou Reed died, his wife, Lori, I believe, was on um, Fresh Air and she was talking about she, they, these three rules that they lived by. And I have them written down somewhere, but one really stuck out to me. And that one was um, don't, don't be afraid of anyone. And I remember hearing that and being like, oh, you can just make that decision, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I have ever since then. I think about especially one person in my life who who is a bully toward me and who wants me to be, you know, very scared and very insecure around them. And just hearing those words completely shifted that for me. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not afraid of you. Even Mm -hmm. if, even if you actually hurt me or kill me someday, I'm actually, I'm not afraid of you. Mm -hmm. And um, just realizing that you can like consciously say those words to yourself and realize that so often fear is a choice, an unconscious choice and something that we can choose to put aside or that we can work through if it's not quite that simple mm-hmm. yeah and I think it's often a request for more information like if you're afraid of spiders it's because you don't know which ones are poisonous and which ones aren't mm-hmm. if you're afraid of snakes same thing because like there is a truth that there are some snakes that could bite you and kill you but you don't you haven't bothered to learn what they are so um I think if you know you know a little bit about me I tend to to connect most deeply with things in the abstract and esoteric first and then like in the practical. So like in the energetic sense, um, I think a lot of energy workers suffer because they have some tools and they have some medicine that they can share in that way. But if you're actually like connecting with another person's energy uh, or, you know, dis-ease, it's a, it's a foreign universe, period, at every time. You are an ambassador and an honored invited guest in someone else's completely foreign universe. And if you're going to react with fear and judgment with everything you see that you haven't encountered before, I don't think you're going to have a very long career or very many clients because they can feel that and they will not invite you back. Um, And so this idea People are like, well, but you know, I didn't know it was like sort of this beast that came up from the ground and it had all these tentacles. And it's just like, well, you have to ask questions. You have to learn, like, what is your intention? What's your nature? Why are you here? Because maybe that's their freaking ancestor. Maybe that's the spirit of their most like close chosen like plant ally. And it, you had the honor of it revealing itself to you in its actual form rather than like in a form it thought you would understand. Um, so my sort of mantra with sort of, I guess, guiding people to have more confidence in like different energetic spaces is like, you know, fear and doubt are never the truth. If there was any, if, if there's any 
spirit guide that was trying to guide you to a good outcome, why would it ever need to make you afraid or doubtful to, to have you um, make the right choice? Like, why wouldn't it just say step to the left, step to the right, you know, don't go that way. No, that one's not your friend. Like, why wouldn't it just tell you? So if there's like, you know, if those those energies are present, then like, like you're not in alignment. You're not really like in um, a space to do good work, uh, um, make good choices for yourself or another person. And, you know, you, you need a minute. <laughs> you need to like face it, figure out what it is, ask the right like, questions. Do your own work, like sit mm-hmm. in your practice with what is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know you have you have an ancestry practice or you connect with your ancestors in various ways. And I'm wondering, relating to this conversation, if you have ever had a strong ancestral dream or message or image come through like you just talked about? Uh, I think when I was younger, I wanted, I had an idea about how it would look, you know, I wanted to see like men and women that looked like the men and women of my family in my dreams or in my, you know, third eye visions. Um, And I wanted to hear them speaking to me in the Spanglish that I grew up with. And, you know, I wanted it to be really really specific. Um, And it it rarely happens that way. I have maybe had a couple things, like one meditation with some cannabis that was like, I'm Grandma Santiago and I'm telling you, like, don't have any shame in doing whatever it takes to make a nice life for your kids. Don't let anybody shame you and say you should do this or that. Or like, like, you know, this sort of old school women's wisdom of just like, this is what women have done for all of time is do whatever it takes to make a better life for your kids. Um, and that was nice. Cause it was like, you know, she kind of like said like, I am this. Um, but Usually it's just a longer, more convoluted journey for me. Um, And so the main way that I have with my mother's family, it's like, you know, she was born in Puerto Rico and we spent a lot of time with that grandmother and the language and the food. Um, So the sense of like, what is the culture? It's a lot clearer. And then my dad's family sort of came English, Irish, German mix came here a long time ago, um, have been in the United States for a long time. And so it was harder to kind of get the sense of like, like, who are my people, like in a bloodline way. Um, And so what I actually needed to do, because my dad's dead. um, And so I couldn't really work out a lot of stuff with him as an adult and so what I found ended up happening was I attracted into my life a lot of people who like my dad was basically unparented from the age of 13 and like uh, like you know exploring a lot of drugs at that age because of some trauma so I, I ended up attracting into my life a lot of men who had trauma around the age 13 and even like ran away from home or otherwise like were unparented starting at that age And, you know, I just thought, you're sexy. I want to be your girlfriend. But, of course, that's not a thing. There's always, like, a higher level thing happening. And what was happening is my spirit was like, I am going to study and study and study and study this archetype until I understand what this energy is underneath the trauma and underneath the trauma strategies, like who my father was. And what I came to realize is, like, they're druids. They're nature-worshipping scholars they value 
the arts and the um, nature, but from a very a fairly intellectual way with a very scholarly bent toward it. Like you study, you use your mind and like your speech and your writing to like speak on behalf of nature and like you know they they were always outside they always had their hands in the earth but they they weren't really that like you know bubby warm like earth worshiping kind of vibe at all um it was like you know you we we our ancestral identity exists in um efforting to protect magic and the feminine and the sacred and nature um and so I think I was able to even get behind another level of ancestry, even behind the Druid thing and just feel like, just get it all the way back to like masculine and feminine. Like what is the masculine? What is the feminine? And it's just like, it's, it's magic and nature. And then the structure that supports and protects the, the continuation of the magic of nature. Uh, and that is my sense of like my my roots, my ancestry now. And so, you know, there's layers. There's like layers of depth to the um, the idea of having an ancestral identity. But I do feel like I have an intact ancestral identity now in a way that I didn't feel even like three years ago. Um. You've used the word magic a number of times, and I am curious what your understanding of that of that concept is. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I wanted it, magic to be real so badly when I was younger, but I didn't. I, I was doing all the things. I had tarot. I was like, you know, I had the farmer's almanac. Was like doing stuff with like the moon, but it was like. I didn't really believe (laughs) I hadn't really had the experiences yet in this lifetime. So it was like, I'm just going to throw myself at this study of like hunting for magic and seeing whether or not it's real. And I don't care if I die, like like not finding it, at least like I'll know that I tried. Um, And then something really did start to shift um, because I have spoken about before, but I had developed a chronic pain condition at 16. So from 16 to around 33, I had migraines from 16 to 30. I had migraines every day. And from 30 to 33, like some of my tools actually started to, to um, work. But that first half of my journey with spirituality and magic was really just in search of one thing, which is relief from, really excruciating physical pain um which finally came with um an osteopath and after these osteopathic adjustments it was like they took the heaviest thing off my plate in this life and I was able to feel like things that people talk about where you see someone in a crystal store that's like holding all the crystals and you're like give me a break really like uh I started to be able to feel like oh my god like this is hot in my hand and this one isn't or you know I was like which one do I get and this one got hot and like things that I just would read about and feel kind of jealous and kind of critical and skeptical before um so it's just to me the proof has been that um there's a lot of undeniably magical things happening all the time, but like life is loud, you know, like nervous systems are loud. The five senses 
overwhelm us with information. And so it's, it's hard to slow down and turn the volume down enough to hear some of the subtler things and that to be like psychic or whatever, it just means that your radio is like a little more finely tuned and anybody can learn to tune their radio that way. But a lot of people wouldn't want to because you tune your radio more sensitively and then everything gets louder. Uh, so um, at this point, my definition of magic is really just um, subtle, like that which exists in nature, but that is um, too subtle to be seen or heard uh, by the untrained eyes and ears. And when I say untrained, I mean either untrained or people who weren't like born with their gifts wide open, which, you know, I don't recommend. <laughs> Anyone in the As of Yet Manifest listening, I don't recommend being born with your gifts wide open because it's going to hurt for a long time until you figure out what the fuck's going on. Um, great definition. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's interesting, too. I think that um, I was born with my radio tuned more sensitively. Um, and I've also dealt with pain since I was 16. And I'm very much in the process, I really think, finally, finally, of making actual lasting changes right now. Thanks yeah. to the shingles I had a couple months ago and other things that have happened recently but I remember at Spirit Weavers a couple years ago when you arrived just in so much pain and I was just had uh, like the utmost empathy because I'd been there and like every time I travel or go to some sort of gathering or conference the pain is so severe <laughs> because I mean this to me you know whatever everyone has their own truth but to me this proves the point that I'm saying is like if your radio is tuned more sensitively and then you step into uh, a, a gathering or a party which is basically just a, a disorderly ceremony um, that, and you are able to hear and see and feel all these things happening on the other dimensions, everyone's fears, shadows, projections, hopes, dreams, ancestors, um, all coming in to try to get something out of the space. Um, and it's just like what happens if you go into Grand Central Station you're not like, wow, I'm hearing all these really interesting conversations. I'm going to come here every day. You hear, it becomes white noise. So that's what a lot of chronic conditions are, is your nervous system has shut down because it, it can't organize the amount of information that your instrument is able to take in in a split second or in a moment. And so it becomes white noise and it shuts down. So you can't hear anything. You can't feel anything. You certainly don't feel like you're being psychic or empathic. It just hurts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh it makes me want to cry um well there's tools though to organize the energies totally. and to turn certain volumes down and switches off intentionally yeah <laughs> yeah totally um and i'm just so glad that this is more in in the collective consciousness right now you know like empath of course is such a like spiritual buzzword but just in general that those of us who are tuned that way have so many have such a big community now and so many resources um I mean, how much time do you want to spend on the empath thing oh gosh <laughs> I, yeah i get to i could talk about it constantly because it has been such a major um maybe like the deepest self-revealing lens for me you know 
What do you think, like, if you just had to have one thing that's like, here's here's what that's about, folks, like this empath thing, or here's, like, one thing that could help you, or the thing that's helped you the most to understand, like, how to operate a sensitive empath's vessel? Well, I mean, for me, the practice that's the most helpful is body oiling, mm. herbal body yeah. oiling. It's, I mean, I recently... Um, I'm seeing an Ayurvedic practitioner right now because of the shingles. And I just, I have been, my nervous system has been on the edge for the last month or two. Like I can usually kind of handle stress in life pretty well. I kind of got my shit together and like, I'm the one who holds everything. And ever since the shingles and then my sister's husband was in a pretty bad accident and we weren't sure if he was going to live for a while. And it brought up all the trauma from my mom's death in an accident and I've just been like super irritable, super irritated all the time, very tired. Um, It's just a really weird space for me to be in and I don't like it. And It's been really hard. And this Ayurvedic practitioner, Michael, was like, you know, have you ever herbal body oiled? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's like what I do. But I haven't been doing it. You know, oh, my God, thank you. And even that's like part of what you teach about. Totally. And you've created like a lot of content around it. Yes. To remind (laughs) yourself that this is really important to you. Exactly. So he's like, I actually think this he's like, I'm going to give you some herbs and stuff. But I think this is the most important thing for you to do every morning. And I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. And so I have been and it just makes a huge difference. It really creates a physical and ethereal protective layer around the body, you know, by the fat getting into the nerves, literally physically helps soothe and protect. And then also I really think over time and immediately just brings, it builds up this like etheric body protect protection Mm -hmm. bubble or something. I don't know, whatever imagery works for you around the body so that when sensory stimuli is coming at me, when stress is coming at me, it um, gets, intercepted and filtered before it hits me mm-hmm. yeah I love I, I love, love it. it so much <laughs> what's what, what's like your main practice um I think it's like it's kind of two part because you know I've been on path with plant medicine for a long time but I encountered um I guess just a lot of people with like similar sensitivities or illnesses or problems with me, like on the professional side of it. And I just felt like, Oh, well, okay. Like these are my people, I guess then this is just how it is for us. And there's still just like empowerment wasn't really there. Um, And so I did need to go into like other things beyond the realm of plant medicine and then like bring them back to like the green path. So for me, um, the like changing my diet is really major. Um, I, I and- wanted to ask you about that. Um, so go ahead, feel free to really talk about specifically how you've changed it because I see your posts and your stories on Instagram and you're always making really interesting, clearly incredibly intentional food. <laughs> um, it, it looks beautiful. It's a medical diet. Uh-huh. So I share the fun things that are like treats and things because like I want my son to eat some of the food or, you know, I don't want to feel deprived. That's important for me. So I, I put a huge amount of effort into um, enhancing the recipes in a way that doesn't like break the, um, the function of the diet. Um, but 
It's called the GAPS diet. GAPS stands for gut and psychology syndrome. And it's based on the research of a Russian MD called Natasha Campbell McBride, who uh, was a pediatrician who began to attract a large number of children with autism and schizophrenia. And then, um, you know, was empowered to just follow her intuition um, deep into creating these protocols. Um, it's, oh, I, it's just like, she's a witch, clearly. And she healed many, many, many people uh, of schizophrenia and autism with diet. Um, and so now she has books, she trains nutritionists. It's like a huge thing. It's not some like fringy thing that I found, um, that like someone said worked. It's like very scientific and, um, is just about the connection between gut health and your brain and your brain also is encompassing of like the coordination of all of your, um, the sensory information you're taking in. It's, it's the um, command center where all that information is coming together. So if, if your gut health is off and it's affecting your brain, then your brain is doing things like telling your body to make like too much or not enough of the hormones that you need to function. So this was really major for me is like my endocrine system and my nervous system just being like fritzing out all the time. And, um, needing to be able to create the right combination of hormones at the right times. And it's like that actually, that intelligence actually comes from your gut. So um, it's not, for me, it's not just about the nutrients, but it's about our highly dysfunctional relationship to like our food supply, like where our food comes from. Cause you really have to know like where all the food that you're all the ingredients are coming from um to do the diet properly and so it if you took out the whole scientific nutrition element of it and just said you're going to now be like going around to the different farmers and getting to know their practices and like finding like appropriate sources for your dairy and your meat and your eggs um I think everyone would agree that that would be deeply healing for communities and your sense of who you are and where you are and where you live. So that's been a major element also. But then in the more practical sense, I've had really intense psychedelic dreams of like shape shifting with the intelligence within animal fat and seeing like you're saying, like with the topical body oiling, the, the seeing it go directly into your cells, like seeing the pattern by which like animal fat spirals into the cells and like takes things out that don't belong there um and feeling it all over my body like in a psychedelic way like okay they're showing me like what animal fat does in the diet and it's trippy it's deep uh yeah i'm just i'm smiling so big right now because i yeah, I'm such a proponent of animal fat. And this is now the fourth podcast in a row um, that <laughs> food and diet has been brought up. And I think in everyone, too, I've talked about fat. Um, that's beautiful. That's such an amazing image to hold in my mind because I just get super intellectual about it. You know, I'm just reading like it's just there's just no doubt that we that our cells need animal fat. Um in the podcast where I had my friend Susie Hazen on and we talked about our time as vegans and, you know, a lot of people, of course, were upset that we're not vegan anymore. Right. And what I wish I had really emphasized is like 
focus on animal fats more than animal meat. If, if, if this is so okay, hard for you to transition vegans, back. A lot of vegans can actually get down with bone broth yes. because it's made from the garbage. It's using the waste that right. is already there that is not going to stop being there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the a huge part of this diet is about um, the, the animals have to be pastured. They have to be antibiotic-free because we understand that those chemicals of fear, you know, go are in the bloodstream, are in the tissues, and we don't need to be eating. And that like- is science, I want to say. That has now been proven. It's not just some hippie idea that like, oh, if they're scared when they're killed, that gets into your body. They're Dr. Zach Bush, Z-A-C-H, who I also keep talking about on this show. Um, I recently heard him on a podcast talking about the science behind that. And I think a big study is about to be released maybe by his research team about that. Yeah. So it's like, I'm certainly not um, a proponent of just eating whatever like meat. I think that there's just completely horrific industry that has sprung up um, that, you know, like I, I do not participate in, but what ends up happening if you eat like this particular diet, the, um, and um, it does force you to be in the kitchen, which is another big piece. Um, I mentioned this, you know, cyclically, but um, we had this woman called Bethany that um, is an ancestral skills teacher who is a master broom maker come and teach at the temple at Elder Farm. And she said something so great that was like, just like, it's not, I guess maybe what she said was, her belief that it's good to do things that our ancestors can actually recognize because so much of what we do, if we did have our like angels, allies, ancestors and guides around us and our ancestors were like, I want to share with you all all the wisdom that I gleaned over my lifetime. And then they just see you like sitting around staring at this little box in your hand. They'd be like, what's she doing? Like, I want to show her how good our people are at skinning Mm -hmm. fish. We were like the best fish skinners there were we tanned these fish skin hides and we made like beautiful like you know useful garments with them um but you know you're never going to discover this uh muscle memory that flows through your hands if you don't ever actually like do a, something like relevant to your survival um so being in the kitchen will link <laughs> women of any culture to their ancestors to and um making stock especially where you're putting scraps leftovers um and and you're throwing it all together and you're making a nutritious slurry for that's medicine for your family um that is a direct line to stepping onto a path of being guided by grandmothers and grandmothers wisdom. And that was a really intentional choice that I made that it's like, I'm going to put aside all my kind of political feminist, like, I don't, I don't need to be in the w- kitchen. Cause I'm a, just cause I'm a woman. I'm an artist. I'm doing other stuff. It's like, there is no other stuff. If no one eats <laughs> like, uh, there's nothing more important. You can certainly still do all the other stuff, but like, like you have to actually be physically in the kitchen. So like sometimes when I get really stressed and overwhelmed, I, w- I will like, um, you know, buy five meals from a paleo meal prep service and throw them in the freezer. And like every time I was just like, you know, this is an indication that I'm at an emergency level of low reserves. That's the communication here because this is, I'm not actually eating the GAPS diet. 
Like you, like part of it is the being in the kitchen and it just keeps going. It keeps peeling back all of our dysfunction around food. So once you're actually touching the meat, which I never did being a vegan for 14 years, it's overwhelming. It's emotional. You feel all the things you realize what a big deal it is that we need to like take life in order to live. And so then you realize, God, I better do something important with my life if all of these ancestors and all these plants and animals are all giving their lives so that I can just be here for another day. I better do something, like, do the thing I said I was going to do in this lifetime. And also, at this point, even the farmer's market feels like the food mall, you know? <laughs> and when I was younger, I was like, if I really ever had the money, I would buy everything at the farmer's market and I would know my farmers. And now I go and I'm just like, it's still just give you money, you give me the thing. And I get a story around it. I feel better about myself. So it's like I'm creeping toward the the understanding I'm still struggling with that like really do have to grow our food. We have, we, if you want right relationship to your food, that's, that might be the only right relationship. And you don't have to grow all of it because clearly we always traded. Like I'm really good with the kale aphids and you know, whatever. I know what, I got a special aphid whispering relationship with them and they don't bother my kale and other people are like, you know, we like to have the cattle and you know, do that thing. But um, I'm getting a goat this month. I saw she's already picked out. She's named. She's spoken for. And um, I, I credit all of that to the GAPS diet. It's just like you can't eat in this way without like learning all the things that we're missing um, from our like education about like what right relationship to our food looks like. So mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that you have two main practices huh? around you ah, you're good yeah you're well good I know if I was listening I'd be like what was the second yeah <laughs> oh I about you tracking um <laughs> yes so that that's the thing is that all this food thing it's been a major overhaul on my life still not enough and these are sort of the things that empaths grapple with is you're like I just I'm doing everything how is it possible it's not enough it's like well just ask your body is it enough or not and you know um, being an empath is a very, very specialized trip. Um, and so the other, there are lots of things, but the other like biggest piece that required a huge investment of time and practice and changing my lifestyle was, um, a daily sadhana. And I believe that, it, you know, probably any daily sadhana that you would commit to would do the thing at least 50%. What's a but, sadhana? Um, sadhana, some people just think of it as like, um, kind of like, you know, it's known in kundalini yoga. So people associate it with like a, a committed yogic practice where you, there's a lot of these practices in kundalini where you do it for 40 days you do a specific combination of um things breathing and postures for a set amount of time so it's kind of like a practice vow but the word sadhana just means support so there were like the practices that supported the path so like um the my sadhana is a tantric sadhana and the issue in the west with um when you say tantra is what most people know as tantra is like 
the pharmaceuticals to the whole plant medicine. It's like we've stripped out the thing that we're like, what, what do I want to get out of this? I want to like feel spiritual when I'm having sex or whatever. And um, passing around this active ingredient that's like, okay, you just like look in the left eye and breathe in this special way. And um, like, you'll get to have the, the gems, the, the, the extra potent uh, ingredient, the active ingredients, and they have stripped out the sadhana. So if you go to any kind of new, new neo-tantra, California tantra event, which like, of course I did, because I didn't know, like there was a difference and I was trying to explore something about myself uh, and my sexuality, you just get to have these really like peak experiences and then you might like walk out into the street and just be like, what the fuck is my name? Like, how am I supposed to drive home right now? Like, I forgot to call the dentist back and now my kid's getting like surgery, like serious, like psychological, um, just big, big experiences that are not integratable. So the sadhana is the support practices that if you were actually to go to like a tantric ashram 5,000 years ago, they would start you at the beginning with fortifying your body rewiring your nervous system, preparing your vessel to interact with those energies in a good way and in a way that would be um, result in um, grounded um, spiritual liberation from suffering, etc. Um, so my sadhana has, the word that always comes is resolved a lot of aspects of my path that I felt disempowered, victimized by, you know, being feeling sort of tormented by certain like energies that might visit me in the night, like every night and just be like, I just want to sleep, like, leave me alone. What is this? Um, it is just a, it's looking at reality from a completely different vantage point and the vocabulary and the teaching stories, the mythology uh, like what the mythology guides you to see or understand about reality, it just makes sense to the experience I'm actually having inside. Whereas none of these um, mythologies or teachings or even from yoga or Hinduism, they were always a stretch for me. It was sort of felt like a metaphor. It's like, yeah, I could see how like that, that metaphor would be a useful way to look at things. It was, it was still a stretch. It was still a metaphor. And within this particular uh, it's a Shakta Tantra lineage. I find the answers to like, why am I constructed the way I am? Why, how is someone constructed with all of these pieces that I am put together with supposed to function in this world, in this paradigm in 2018? Like, how is that even possible? And the purpose of the sadhanas are really to develop your relationship with with different goddesses and that those goddesses then walk with you and guide you and teach you um how to be you if you in fact are someone here with a vessel wired to transmit shakta tantra frequencies for you know uh the alleviation of suffering <laughs> That's big. <laughs> um, we talked about kind of your your goddess practice when I was on your podcast too. So I'm just going to mention that for people who I'm, I'm sure that is going to catch a lot of ears. Um, 
but we're running we're running out of time um but i wanted to i really love this thing that you said to me when we were preparing to speak you said i've always studied mythology and in the last few years have found that they are more than parables or teaching stories that the energies spoken of and myths are natural processes that unfold as body sensations please tell me more about that <laughs> um Again, I always like to qualify that, like, if you have an illness um, or dysfunction or even just deep depletion in your body, then what I just, what you just read, like, is not going to be real for you. Um, and it will maybe even be frustrating or feel unattainable in a sad way. Um, so, the, like, the most practical, like, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, like, having um, a healthy menstrual cycle, all of these things are indications that, um, like having figured out how to make enough money in order to eat enough food, like if you are in that place in your life, those are indications that like what might be coming next is, um, the revelation of, um, what you just read. So, um, uh, it wasn't until the naturopath or the osteopath that I spoke of earlier and that really big, massive, like level of pain. So if it's like zero to a hundred and I was at like 70 every day, kind of going down to like 10, 15 every day. And then I had all that bandwidth freed up to like perceive reality more as it actually is. Um, and so um, something I kind of dig about like Shakta Tantra in particular is just like, I've said this before in other talks, but like, it's kind of boring at first. Like, it's sort of like, if you read the books that people are like, that person is like the foremost tantric scholar. Those are the books you read it. It just feels like so detailed and, and methodical. And they're talking about, you know, a culture that's not ours. So the cultural references don't land and like, whatever. Um, so you really have to have some higher self part of yourself that's like, keep going. Like, wait for it. Wait for it. Invest a little something of yourself. Make some choices here. Commit to learning what this is. And when you make those commitments for whatever reason that makes, that um, inspires you to make them, then, like, for example, there's, like, a neo-tantra teacher in San Diego that, like, you know, if you, lots of people look at their website and they're like, that person seems kind of lame, you know? Or like, oh, you studied with that person? Like, that, what was that like? Like, it doesn't seem like real but the first time that I ever connected with them like a sister was working with them and they're like they have free phone calls you can like have a free phone call with them and so I was like well whatever I'm in need it's free sure and it was a basic simple conversation like just what is Tantra and um and it was Neo-Tantra even <laughs> but I hung up the phone and didn't think about it for the rest of the night and then like went into my meditative space and had like one of the most like profound physical sensations I've ever felt. And some people would say, oh, that's Kundalini. And I'm like, I read the book. I don't think it's not the Kundalini you're talking about. If, but it is Shakti. It is, um, and that my experience is like the goddesses will come as these sort of fleshy, multi-dimensional mandalas of a 
level of realness of say like vapor, you know, like they're not there, but they are. Um, and you can't see them, but you can, uh, there's a thickness to the energy and there always are like a patterns in these fleshy mandalas. And then I just shape shift with them. They just like come in and I like, they'll like hover over my bed or uh, whatever. And so the first time that ever happened was after a free phone call with some sort of like questionably lame neo-tantra guy, you know? Um, and so I've come to saying sort of casually, like, like when I go around, I check out like other teachers and like, is this real? It's just like that the measure to me, like my mind might not think it's real. My mind might be like, oh, this is stupid. There's like a red polyester satin pillow, with like a little stain on it. Like, ugh, I don't want to be here. And then like, I'll go home and it'll be like my whole room is spiraling and like in comes this intelligence. And it like, the patterns are always the same, but they reveal to me different things. So it's like clearly some kind of, of um, communication on a frequency level um and that has been my experience of tantra versus other magic uh, um but i can just kind of extrapolate with other magic that i have connections to that aren't as strong or as physical that's just like okay these energies have a form and they have an intelligence and they have a purpose and we ha we have relationships with them and, and when the you can i clarify when you say energies you're speaking of like archetypes um, well, you know, I'm speaking of goddesses. My teacher is very clear, like they're not archetypes. They are fields of consciousness. They are beings. But I often use the word archetype to refer to a field of consciousness. And so I think all I think every archetype in the tarot has a physicality and has a personality and is there in the energetic realms. So it's kind of gets into being a semantics thing. Mm -hmm. But um what you you know yeah but it's like it's not mythology it's not um archetype in an abstract sense um and so it's just again like if you're sensitive you can keep going in that direction of of becoming more and more sensitive until you can actually see what's going on that your your sensitivities are reacting to or you can go the other direction which a lot of people do is like drink a lot of alcohol and um do whatever they can to turn the volume down and not see what it is that their body is responding to and i, I want to know i want to see all this stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's my dad that's really i mean aside from heavy ancestral um inheritance i his alcoholism my sister and i have come to see has so much to do with um his sensitivity his extreme empathy and sensitivity. Um, yeah, and that was my dad too. So I think that, that is like women have a little bit more leeway to be like psychic mm -hmm. and sensitive and men who are built in that way and constructed with those gifts have a harder time than women in these times. Absolutely, yes. Um, so, okay, let's wrap up. Yaya, tell tell the people um where to find you and the offerings that you have like your your apprenticeship looks incredible thank you yeah. um yeah um you can learn more we have lots of free content at activeculturefamily.com and um you know all the things we have a mailing list that if you sign up for it will keep you up to date about uh ways to connect and our primary offering at this point is called 
Medicine Mandala. It's a green magic apprenticeship and it's a year long commitment. And so we do occasionally travel to um, other cities and gatherings to share a little piece here or there of some of the things we've been talking about, but really just found that it's most satisfying to work with people who have already made a really significant commitment to walking this path. Uh, and so and this is um, in San Diego. Yes, it's, it's in uh, San Diego, California, uh, in Descanso in the Cleveland National Forest on sacred Kumaye land. And the land is really alive and inspired, inspired us to bring other women there to learn and heal. So it's, um, I call it full spectrum herbal learning. So it's based in the wise woman tradition of herbal medicine that I'm trained in and then brings in all the classic Tantra and um, my teacher's uh, so really just bringing in a lot of tools and practices and support for the green path. Yeah. We didn't even really talk about herbalism, but it has been one of the main, um, paths that you've walked and you did Susan Weed's apprenticeship, right? What long time ago, maybe mm-hmm. it feels like 2009, I think. I okay. Finished, uh, 2000. Yeah. 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's a whole other aspect of, mm-hmm. of you that we didn't get into today, but very it's much part how it of it goes. Yeah, just talk about all the things around the your, people's path with the plants, and then like you know how to not injure yourself in your explorations with the plants, and you know, <laughs> um, you know, I encourage people to to really discover their own relationships and just create opportunities for them to figure out like what they're what their relationship to the green realm is. Yeah, I think that a lot of people when they're interested feel like, well, if I follow this path, then I just have to be an herbalist. And what I like about the way a lot of the interviews on this podcast have gone is that you can see that, you know, the herbalists are so much bigger than just this one aspect of their lives. Um, Yeah. And is it like a choice to to do do the different parts of our lives or our art in the context of the plants? Mm hmm. Perfect. Perfectly said. Um, Okay. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's good. I haven't haven't seen each other in a few years. So I'm glad to have this (laughs) opportunity to look into your eyes and hear what's going on with you. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing this space today, Amber. Mm -hmm. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, Handmade Herbal Medicines, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, be sure to click the black banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, there's some cool rewards there, like exclusive content, free access to my herbal ebook and online course, and the ability to chat with me. I am a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom, and adding another project into my life with this podcast is a questionable move. But I'm also so excited about it and just praying that the Patreon will allow me the financial wiggle room to keep doing it. 
Another way that you can support, if that's not an option, is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and review the podcast. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And thank you to Marie Sue for providing the music that I use. That's Marie with two E's, S-I-O-U-X. This is from her song, Wild Eyes, one of my favorites. Uh, Check out Marie Sue. Beautiful music. Thank you, and I look forward to next time. Bye.